In 1 Peter 1.1, Peter says that those to whom he is writing are elect exiles. Uh, last week, we focused on the aspect of us and them being exiles. And this week, I want us to focus on the fact that we are elect. And what does that mean? And in particular, what I want us to see is just how remarkable it is that we are elect. Uh, just how staggering a truth that is, that we who have nothing beautiful in us, who have nothing compelling in us, who have everything wrong with us, that nevertheless, God would choose us in Him. So to see that, we are going to begin by reading our passage from 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Pat will come up and read that for us. And the next, Ryan will come up and read for us from Ezekiel 16, 6 through 14. Now, this is an amazing passage. I know that parts of it may be a little bit jarring to our modern uh, sensibility, but what's so amazing about this is it just paints a very uh, stark picture of how God chose us, that even when we didn't have anything to merit ourselves or to commend ourselves to God, that God nevertheless chose us and how he chose us and what he chose us for. And it just paints a really beautiful picture of how God did that. And so I hope you can receive that picture as just a beautiful picture of God's choice of us. Uh, from there, we'll return to the New Testament. Moira will come and read for us from Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, which is maybe the most classic text on the fact that we have been chosen by God. And then finally, Sadie will come and read for us Romans 9, verse 11, that tells us the ultimate place where this choice comes from. Uh, so now, if uh, Pat, you want to come forward and begin our reading, and let's listen to God's word together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 6 through 14. And when I passed you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed you by again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Ephesians 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Well, beloved, it is a deep longing of the human soul to be chosen, is it not? I think all of us hopefully know to some degree the joy of being chosen by another. Maybe it's by some group or some individual that we admire. We feel like they choose us to some degree. At the same time, we probably also know how horrible it feels when we're not chosen. Probably one of the saddest pictures of not being chosen just in our popular cultural imagination that I can think of is the practice of uh, choosing teams with uh, two different captains. I mean, we've probably all gone through this process before. You know, you want to play some sport, basketball, soccer, whatever it is. In order to divide the teams, you choose two captains, and then those captains have to pick who's on their team. You know, maybe you have 20 people there or something, and so each captain goes back and forth, you know, and they pick who's going to be on their team. And so naturally, the first person that they pick is whoever they think is the very best at the sport, right? And then the next person that picks is going to pick whoever they think is the second best, and so on, until there is always, inevitably, only one person left, right? And that last person there, the last person to be chosen, just has to have his spirit crushed in that moment, just to realize that Both team captains think he's the worst person out there, and now they've let everybody else also know that they think he's the worst person out there. And so probably even before they take the field in any way, he just feels defeated. And he feels defeated because he has not been chosen. He has not been picked. He realizes that he is the least one favored out of all the people that are present. And so we all have that picture in our minds of how severe it can be to not be chosen. At the same time, I think we also all have in our hearts what it can mean to actually be chosen. Indeed, I think probably the prime example of the glory of being chosen is in the whole notion of a marriage proposal, right? And of course, song after song is written about how a man will choose a woman to be his wife or to be his girlfriend or to be his lover. And of course, whenever that choice is made, the profession is always made that this is going to be forever. And of course, because of the fickleness of the human heart, Often it doesn't turn out that way, but nevertheless, there is this elation that comes from saying, I choose you to be mine. There was a song when I was in middle school that was really popular. I liked to listen to the radio a lot when I was in middle school, and it had a line that said, all my life I prayed for someone like you, and I thank God that I finally found you. And of course, who wouldn't love to hear those words? You know, who wouldn't love to be chosen in that respect that all my life I've prayed for someone like you and I finally found you? You know, out of all the people on the earth, I wouldn't choose anyone, but I would choose you. And that can just so fill our hearts. It makes us feel like everything is right with the world when we have been chosen in that way. And when we come here to 1 Peter 1, verse 1, again, we see here that the people that Peter is writing to are called elect exiles. Now, I don't love that our translation says elect. It makes it sound like it was some political thing that happened or something, you know, like there was some election and a bunch of people voted for who Peter was going to write to, and that's who he wrote to. Of course, that's not all at all what uh, Peter is expressing when he writes the word uh, elect exiles. Elect simply means chosen, that you are someone who is selected. 
And in the context of 1 Peter, it's very clear who is doing this electing, who is doing this choosing. It is God himself. God is choosing these people. And so when Peter is writing to these people in the church, what he wants them to know is that even though they are exiles, even though they may feel abandoned, even though they may feel like they have been cast out of their homes, nevertheless, they are chosen. They are beloved. And I think that what Peter wants to communicate in that word, saying you are elect, you are chosen, is precisely what I have just expressed. And that idea of receiving a proposal or maybe being that first one picked for a team that you are chosen, you are valued, you have been specially selected by God. You aren't just another person who happened to be in church that Sunday. No, you have been chosen by God. You are actually elect. You have been selected by God. I think the reason why our English translations do use that word elect is just because the the Greek word is eklektois, and so elect sounds kind of like the Greek, and so I think translators like that. But I do think for us, it's more useful to think of this word as meaning chosen, not just elect, but actually chosen or selected by God. Now, I'm not going to take time to defend uh, this position that I'm about to describe this morning, but ultimately the, the theological point that this word is making is that behind the decision that anyone makes to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a previous decision that has been made by God, a decision that God made to choose them first, and then our decision to follow Jesus is simply a response to this choice that has already been made by God. You could think of this in terms of that those who are followers of Jesus Christ are not merely or not even mainly those who have made some decision to follow Jesus. Rather, followers of Christ are those whom God has chosen to be his people. That ultimately, what makes the people of God distinct is not our own decisions and is not things that we try and do, but ultimately what makes the people of God distinct is the fact that God himself has set them apart. That God himself has chosen them to be his people. And the fact that they now make certain decisions and live in a certain way is simply a reflection of that prior choice by God. So those of you who are here this morning and who are trusting in Jesus know this, that you are here this morning and you are that way because God has chosen you. Not because you figured something out, Not because you're better than somebody else, but because God has chosen you. And that's why you're here this morning. If you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning, well, we're glad you're here. And you might be wondering right now, well, has God chosen me? And it could just be that he has chosen you and you just don't know it yet. The main question to ask if you're wondering if God has chosen you is the question, can I trust Jesus right now? That is, can I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Can I believe that he loves me, that he gave himself for me, that he died for me, and that he rose again? If you can actually believe that amazing statement, that totally unlikely statement, if you can believe that, that is a sign that God indeed has chosen you, that God has set you apart and he is working in your heart even now so that you can believe these crazy things that Christians believe. It is the work of God's choice in you. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon captures all this well, kind of demystifies this reality for us by saying, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, 
I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whosoever believes, I know he is one of the elect. And so, beloved, there's no stripe on your back. There's no way that I can see from the outside that God has chosen you. But what I do know is that if you are treasuring God right now, if you love Jesus right now, if you want to believe in what Jesus has done right now, this itself is a sign that God is at work in you, that he has chosen you, that he has set you apart. Now, obviously, there's much more that could be said about this topic. I know it raises many questions. It raises many objections. But my my aim of my sermon this morning is not to simply defend the doctrine of predestination so much as to celebrate it, to celebrate the fact that we have been chosen by God. Sometimes we Christians or really people in any field can get so busy analyzing or assessing something, examining something, that we can forget to enjoy it. Uh, Just this morning, I was up early and I could look up at the stars in the night sky and the sky was just so clear, you know, as it so rarely is in Pittsburgh. I could look up and I could see all of these stars. And it was just stunning to me, once again, to be able to look up and see the beauty of these stars and just kind of be amazed, you know, have my mind blown that these tiny little dots of light in the night sky are actually stars that are bigger than I can even fathom if I could see them up close. And so I was able to be amazed at this realization of what the night sky actually is. And at the same time, I can think of how many astronomers look up at the same sky as I do, look up at the same sky much more than I do, and when they look up at this sky, probably all they see is math equations and spectral analysis and all these fancy things like that. They don't live in wonder of just how amazing and beautiful the night sky is. And so in the same way, I don't want us to be a people that just kind of analyze the doctrine of election or understand the doctrine of predestination or the fact that we're chosen by God. No, I want us to be a people that are simply amazed by it and delight in it, that our hearts are changed because of it. So I'm not going to spend time looking at the ins and outs of this doctrine this morning, although that is an important thing to do. And if you do have questions or if your own heart is challenged by this truth, I'd love to talk to you after the message But for now, I want to take some time to celebrate this fact that we are chosen by God. And again, it should not be surprising to us at all that our hearts do rejoice in this fact. Again, our hearts rejoice in the fact that we are chosen by human beings, right? Again, when we're chosen for a team, when we're chosen for marriage, when we're chosen for some award or whatever we may be chosen for, our hearts naturally leap at that. Like, yes, I have been affirmed. My value has been recognized. But beloved, if our hearts leap for joy at this reality that we can be chosen by other human beings, how much more should our hearts leap for joy by the fact that we have been chosen by the almighty God of the universe? And just like a woman's heart can be melted if a man speaks to her in such a way as to say that I don't want anyone else but you and you are the only one that I love and how that calls the wife's heart to love her husband In the same way, when we hear this message from God that I have chosen you especially, that I have not chosen everyone on the earth, I have chosen you especially, it should cause our hearts to respond to God saying, Lord, if you would love me so much, if you love me like this, if you would choose me, then I want to love you in return. And so I want us to see the wonder of the fact that we have been chosen by God. 
I want to look at the reality that we have been chosen in amazing ways. I want us to see just how chosen we are, how finely tuned God's selection of us is, how staggered we should be at the fact that we have been chosen by God. But one word of caution before I jump into all that is staggering about the fact that God has chosen us, and that one word of caution is this, that our hearts, our sinful human hearts, can easily take this knowledge that we have been chosen and we can bend it for a purpose other than that for which it was intended. Namely, instead of saying, thank you, God, that I am chosen in this way, just help me to respond to this fact that you have chosen me, we can oftentimes turn it into a form of pride and say, oh, Lord, you have chosen me. I must be very great. You must have a really good reason behind choosing me. And this is just a foolish way to understand the fact that we have been chosen by God. It's like if a husband were to tell his wife, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And then that wife were to take that statement that she's the most beautiful woman in the world and she were to go out of the house and every other woman she meets, she starts to look down on a little bit and she's like, well, you're not as beautiful as me because my husband told me that I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. And she becomes very proud because of what her husband told her. We all recognize that this is foolish, that when a husband tells his wife that she is the most beautiful woman in the world, now, I hope the husband is sincere in that, and if there's some objective form of beauty, maybe the husband is even right, that he does have a wife that is the most beautiful woman in the world. But even if that is the case, what that statement is supposed to do is it's supposed to bond the husband and wife together. It's supposed to make the wife thankful that she has a husband that loves her so and admires her so and is supposed to strengthen their marriage. It's not simply supposed to make the wife proud or make her feel good about how beautiful she is. And so my hope is that even as we see how chosen we are by God, we don't turn this into a form of pride or a reason to think, well, I must be better than somebody else because I have been chosen by God. Rather, my hope is that this can actually humble us and again, generate more love in our hearts as we see how God has so loved us, how he has so chosen us in love. And so, with all that being said, let's look for just a little while at just how chosen we are by God. First, it's clear that Scripture teaches that we have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. We have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, verse 4 that we read just before the message. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, foundation of the world, I know, is very poetic sounding, but what it means is just that even before there was time, even before there was any creation at all, you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. You were chosen even before there was such a thing as time. In other words, God did not wait to choose you like he needed to consider his options and make sure that he was really making the best decision. No, he chose you at once from the beginning. As soon as the thought of you appeared in his mind, he right then immediately chose you for himself before you existed, before any human being even existed. He selected you and set you apart. In America, we have this romantic notion of love at first sight. You know, we think love at first sight is much better maybe than other kinds of love. Well, this you could say is the theological equivalent of love at first sight. 
that God set his love upon you as soon as he saw you. He chose you immediately. You were chosen by God before anyone else had thought of you, before anyone else chose you or saw anything worthy in you. You were chosen by God. In fact, because God's decrees are unchanging from infinite time past to infinite time future, this means that there was never a time when you existed. There never will be a time when you exist, when you are not chosen by God. God always has loved you and he always will love you. Is it not better, beloved? Is it not more sweet to be chosen by someone whose will will never change, whose choice will never change, and whose choice was made at once and not after simply surveying lots of options and trying to find out if you're really the best. Rather, he set his love upon you from the very beginning. He didn't just choose you for a particular time or for a particular purpose, and then after that time, he's going to be done with you and he's going to move on. No, from eternity past, he chose you so that you would be his forever and ever. And so, beloved, marvel at the fact that you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. God loved you from eternity past, and he will love you until eternity future. Second, you were chosen by a sheer act of love. You were chosen by a sheer act of love. In other words, the Lord did it all on his own, apart from anything good in you, apart from anything that you have done. This is what we we read in Romans 9, verse 11. It says, though they, and this is speaking in particular of Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is saying that in particular, in the case of Jacob and Esau, that he chose one of them. And why did he choose one of them? simply for his purpose of election, because God willed it, because he had a desire for one, and so he chose one. God is saying he didn't choose Jacob instead of Esau because Esau was a bad person and Jacob was a good person, or he knew Esau was going to mess up and Jacob wasn't going to mess up, or anything in Jacob or Esau. He chose them simply because he is a God of love simply because he wanted to set his love upon a human, and he chose a human to set his love upon, and that human happened to be Jacob. Now, in the case of Jacob and Esau, it's especially remarkable because Jacob and Esau were twins. It's like God was using this example of twin brothers, biologically the same, in the same womb. And God is saying that it is not any difference in them that sets one apart from the other. It's not anything that they could possibly do. It's not anything that they will become. Biologically, they are exactly the same. And yet, because of who I am, because of my own heart, because of my own desires, I will choose one. I will choose Jacob and not Esau. Beloved, this means that you were not part of some beauty pageant where he chose the winner. No, God is simply gracious and compassionate. 
Therefore, you never have to worry about doing something that might turn his love away from you because it wasn't what you did that purchased his love in the first place. No, it was God's sheer mercy. And this is maybe the clearest reason why we can't use this choice of us as a reason for pride because his choice of us was not owing to anything good in us. It was entirely owing to the good that is in God. God's love is a fundamental aspect of his character. And so you never have to worry about him changing his mind. And because he chose you on the basis of his own character and not on the basis of your works, he will never turn away from you. You don't have to worry about losing the love of God. No matter how bad or wicked you may be, if you will just cling to Jesus Christ Demonstrate that you are one of those who are chosen, then God's love remains upon you simply because of His mercy. Beloved, isn't it good to be loved securely? Simply because of the character of the one who has chosen you? Not because you have done something really great and grand? Of course, we do love to be chosen for particular awards, you know, for recognition of accomplishments. But whenever we are chosen in those ways, those things always come with this fear, do they not? Of like, well, can I continue to perform? Can I continue to maintain the reason why they chose me in the first place? But what God is saying here in choosing you out of his own character is he's saying that there's nothing, no performance that you need to maintain. There's nothing that you have to demonstrate to me. You don't have to earn my favor. I have already chosen you. And I chose you because of who I am. Beloved, it is so good to be loved by a God who loves in this way simply because he loves and not because of who we are. And beloved, think of how amazing it would be for the same kind of love to flourish in our marriages, in our families, in our churches. That you don't just love your wife because she does something for you, because she pleased you in some way. No, you love her because you are predisposed to love and because she is the one you married and so you love her with all your heart. And your kids, you don't just love them when they do the right thing and when they make you proud. No, you just love them because they're your children. And you're pleased with them, regardless of whether they do well or whether they do poorly. And the same in the church community. We don't just love one another because, well, you've scratched my back or you've helped me in this way and therefore I love you in return. No, we love one another from the heart because God's love has been shed in our hearts. And so we want to love one another because we're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. This is how we are to love one another, beloved, precisely because we have been loved in that same way. Do you know that you are loved and not because of your performance, not because of anything you bring to the table, but just because God has chosen you in his own will? Third, it's amazing to be chosen by God because you were chosen, though it would cost him everything, though it would cost God everything, He still chose you. And the reason why it cost God everything to choose you is because the Lord could not have chosen you unless he killed his own beloved son upon a cross. The Lord could not bring a sinful person to himself, to his own presence, if there was not some atonement made for that sin, if that sin was not somehow dealt with. And so if God was going to choose you for himself, if God was going to choose you to be with him forever, then he knew that a sacrifice was going to have to be made. 
And that sacrifice that had to be made was ultimately the sacrifice of His own Son. Beloved, this emphasizes for us that God knew the worst about us and He still chose us. He knew that our actions would put His Son to death on a cross and He still chose us. Beloved, there is no worse thing that our sins commit than the offense against a holy God, than the crucifixion of the Son of God. That is the worst possible consequence of our sin. And God knew that consequence from the outset, and He still chose us in spite of that consequence. Scripture over and over speaks of Jesus as God's beloved Son, as God's only Son. Indeed, Jesus was one with God the Father. And then he became a man to walk the earth. And so when Jesus hung upon that cross, suffered and died, it was as if the very heart of God himself was crushed upon that cross. And God knew that was going to happen. And God still chose you, beloved. God knew all the suffering that his son was going to have to go through. God knew that his son was going to have to descend to hell after the cross. And God knew that his son would rise again for our salvation. And even knowing all of that, God still chose you. This is the very message behind Paul's words in Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, do you hear the the import of those words? Paul is saying that if God gave Jesus Christ, if God gave Jesus Christ, who he loved more than anyone else, who was more precious to God than anything else in the world, and God gave him up for us, then how could God not give us anything else? Because everything else is much less value than Jesus Christ. And so if God would choose us, even in the face of losing his beloved son, then we know that there is nothing that we could do that would possibly bring God's condemnation, that would possibly bring his rejection. And in fact, we can have every hope that everything we get in this life, whether it be a hard suffering or whether it be an enormous blessing, is actually good from God's hand because he gave his son and he will give us everything good. He wouldn't give us his son and then give us things to make us miserable, things that show us that he hates us. No, if he gives us his son, then everything else he gives us is for our good. Because he gave what was most precious to him. He gave what was priceless to him. And therefore, he will give us with him all things. So, beloved, be sure that God loves you to the uttermost. Not simply when you don't sin, but even through your sin, in spite of your sin, God loves you. God knew how you would crucify his son, and yet he chose you. Beloved, is not God's choice of you remarkable and astonishing? And then fourth and last, realize that you were chosen to be his bride. You were chosen to be God's bride. In other words, he couldn't have given you a place any nearer to himself. He couldn't have drawn you any closer. 
This reality is probably stated most clearly in Ephesians 5. This is verses 25 to 27. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then just two verses later, he says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so marriage, earthly marriage, God created it so that we would have a picture of what God chose us for, so that we would have a picture of how God was drawing us to himself. We were chosen to be his bride. In Revelation, this theme is followed up on, and we see that there is even an event coming that God calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate our marriage to God, and that we will be God's people forever, and He will be our God. Again, this is the whole purpose of marriage given in creation, so that we could have a picture of how close of a union God wanted to form with us. The point of saying that you are joined to God as a bride is to a husband is to say that we are not joined to God merely as friends or merely as acquaintances or allies or non-belligerents or any other sort of relationship that you would like to think of to typify our relationship with God. No, what is supposed to characterize our relationship with God is that of husband and wife. That is what God chose us for. He proposed to us that we would be his bride. And so, beloved, as you see God's choice of you, as you see how he has selected you, not because of anything you have done, even before the very beginning of time, even though it cost him his son, in order that you could be his bride, would you just marvel at God's love for you? Would you just marvel at how his choice has been made, that you yourself individually would be his? If you see that you are chosen in this way, then it's hard to imagine how you would want to forsake this status for anything else, is it not? (laughs) If you see how securely you are loved, if you see how nearly you have been invited to God himself, then why would you want to go to any other lover? You surely cannot be as close to them as you could be to God who wants you for his bride, who wants to be joined with you as one. You surely cannot be more secure with another lover than you can be with God who chose you out of his own character before the very beginning of time and who will persist in loving you even though you crucified his very son. Beloved, when you see how strong God's choice of you is, how can you go anywhere else? How can you want to be bonded to anyone other than this God who would love you in this amazing way, who would set his love upon you in this remarkable way? Imagine a wife who has an amazing husband, a husband that loves her deeply and that shows his love in a multitude of ways. And imagine that she forsakes that man for a one-night stand with some guy that she meets in a bar. We would all say that she is crazy, would we not? We'd all say, why on earth would she do that? And the wife herself would probably realize what a terrible mistake she made as soon as it was all over. 
And yet, beloved, that is what we do day in and day out. We see that we have a God who has loved us with this eternal love, even at the cost of his own son to be his bride. And yet day in and day out, we don't give him our entire heart. We don't give him our full devotion. We hold something back. We say, no, I want to find joy over here, and I want to find joy over here. I want to find satisfaction in this thing and satisfaction in this other thing instead of finding joy in the only one who can satisfy us and indeed the one who has chosen us for that very purpose to satisfy our hearts. God calls for our entire heart. He calls for our full devotion. Whenever we make it seem like God can have a little bit of our time, but we're going to keep the rest for ourselves, we're committing this very kind of spiritual adultery that God hates and he justly hates because of how he has chosen us and how he has set his love upon us. Whenever we say that video games or sports or movies or media or whatever else it is, whenever we say that those things are more precious to us than God himself is, it's like we slap God in the face for this incredible choice that he has made in choosing us to be his people. And again, I'm not saying that God hates us for that. Again, his love for us persists even in the face of that, which should make us all the more ashamed that that is what we do. Because his love does not fade. And so, beloved, what this calls us to, what God's choice of us from all eternity calls us to, is fervency of love. Do you know how much we all ought to love the Lord? Beloved, it should not be crazy for us to say something like, I just want to memorize the whole Bible because I want to know every last word that my beloved has spoken to me. It shouldn't be crazy for us to say, you know what, I don't even want to own a TV because I realize how the TV makes me distracted in my pursuit of God. It shouldn't be crazy for us to say, I gave up owning a smartphone because I found that it was distracting me all the time. It shouldn't be crazy for us to say that I prayed for two hours yesterday just because the sweetness of God's presence was so overwhelming to me. Beloved, love for God looks like that. Beloved, we are to have actual love for God, not just general reverence for God, not just a desire to serve Him in some generic kind of way, but actual love from our hearts. Again, the same kind of love that a man has for his wife. Don't forget how God called Hosea to love Gomer as a picture of His love for His people. Do you all know that story? How Hosea the prophet... God called him to go and take a wife who was a prostitute and to love that woman as he would love his very own wife, to marry her, to have children with her. And Hosea was faithful and he did that. And God told Hosea, this is how I love my people. And I want my people to love me in return. We are not merely to be a faithful wife or a dutiful wife. No, we are to be a passionate wife and a loving wife toward God who chose us. In the New Testament, who are the models of love that we are to follow? Is it not Anna who sat in the temple day and night with fasting and prayer, longing to see the Messiah come? Is it not the lady who was a great sinner who had been forgiven much and then who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair? 
Is it not the, the woman who poured the most expensive thing that she owned, that bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet as he head toward the cross? Is it not Mary who simply sat at Jesus' feet to listen to him instead of doing the hundred other things that she had to do? No, she just wanted to listen to the words of Jesus. Is it not Mary Magdalene who went to Jesus' tomb while it was still dark as soon as she could so that she could prepare Jesus' body for burial? Beloved, these are the ones we are to imitate. These are the ones who are held up in the New Testament as the models for us because they truly got it. They understood that they had been chosen by God. They understood that God set their love upon them and they were blown away that God would love them with such an everlasting love, with such a persevering love. And so they responded to God's love in extravagant ways. And so, beloved, what are we to do? What are we to do knowing that we ought to love God in this extravagant, amazing way, and yet knowing for every one of us here, I'm sure, that we don't yet love God as we should. And I can be confident saying that none of us love God as we should because loving the Lord is the one greatest commandment of the whole Bible, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I'm sure if any of us were doing that perfectly, we would be perfect. But none of us are perfect. And so we are all failing in some degree for our love for God. And so what we, what do we do in this in-between phase? knowing how we should love God, knowing that we should be this passionate for God, and yet knowing where we sit right now, just so often cold toward God, so often lifeless toward God. Indeed, maybe even talking these words this morning, proclaiming these words about how God has chosen you, maybe it still just kind of leaves you dead inside and without a spark. What are we supposed to do in light of this hard truth? Well, beloved, I see myself there Every day and every week, and the first word that I want to say to that is simply don't give up. Don't lower the standard. Don't just accommodate where you are right now. No, understand the high calling that we have of passionate and radical love for God and continue to pursue that. Even though we may fail every day, that's okay because God loves us still and he calls us forward still. And so don't lower the standard. Don't say, well, I think it's all right where I am right now. No, continue to hold before yourself how God desires us to passionately love him from the heart. And don't rest until you get there, beloved. So that's the first thing that we must do is simply hold that goal before yourself. Hold that goal before yourself. Second, pray. <laughs> Even if you feel like you can't do anything else right, even if you feel like you don't have any energy to open your Bible, even if you don't even have energy to really set aside a time to pray, just between bites of your lunch, offer up a short prayer to God and say, Lord, change my heart. Lord, do a work in my heart. I probably pray that 50 times a day, just realizing that I am much too cold toward God. And so it's continually my prayer to God, Lord, change my heart. Lord, I am so weak. I am so lost. You loved me so much and I love you so little. Lord, change my heart. And so pray and pray and pray. And I believe that the Lord will be faithful in answering that prayer. The Lord has certainly grown my love from where I was when I was first a believer. 
And I pray that he will continue to grow that love so that next year and in five years I will love the Lord even more than I love him right now. The Lord delights to answer prayers that accord with his will. And so pray that the Lord would give you that sort of love. Third, respond to whatever godly impulses you have. Respond to whatever godly impulses you may have. Again, our lack of love for God most often shows up in the fact that we don't want to spend time with God. We don't want to pray. We don't want to know God's word. We don't want to gather with God's people, right? We just want to do what pleases our own flesh. But every once in a while, God will be gracious and he might give you a beam of light. Maybe it's in the middle of you watching some lame TV show or in the middle of you being selfish in some other way. He'll give you a beam of light where you suddenly have a desire to say, you know what? I really would like to read a little bit of scripture right now. Or I'd really like to pray right now. Or I'd really like to meet with someone else right now. Beloved, never quench those desires. Never quench those desires. If ever God gives you the slightest ray of hope, that slightest ray of love in your heart, dive into that as quickly as you can. Even if there may be other obstacles in your way, you know, maybe it's one evening and usually you would watch some TV show with your spouse or something, but for some strange reason, you just have a desire to pray that night. Well, just tell your spouse, for some strange reason, honey, I have a desire to pray tonight, so I'm not going to watch the TV show and I'm going to spend a little time praying. And when you continually do that, when you stack up those times of just following the Spirit's impulse in your heart, then God will continue to fan those flames so that your love for God can grow and grow and grow. So never, never deny the slightest impulse toward God that you may have. And then the last bit of practical advice I want to give in order to fan this flame of love for God in your heart is simply to watch your media intake. Watch your media intake. It is so easy for us today to be totally swamped by media of all different kinds. I mean, I'm talking podcasts, TV, social media, radio. You know, we can go through an entire day and not have one single moment of silence. But that media can be used for good, just like it can be used for ill. One thing I notice very often is that if I spend too much of my time listening to, I don't know, let's say an NFL podcast or something like that, if, if that's what I'm continually listening to, then I notice over the course of a week that my desire for God just slowly grows less and less and less until at the end of the week, I look back and I wonder, where did my heart for God go? It's like I don't even feel any desire for him anymore. And so one discipline I have is just to say, if I can't listen to something God-honoring when I'm in the car, then I just won't listen to anything at all. <laughs> or if I have some impulse to listen to something God-honoring, I'll turn on something God-honoring. And again, you can do that in every area of media, but know that if you drown your brain, if you drown your ears in things that have no reference to God for hour after hour, day after day, that will dull your affections for God. And so watch your media intake. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. And again, beloved, what should be the motivation for doing any of these things? The motivation for doing any of these things should not be guilt. It should not be just wanting to try harder or wanting to do the right thing. No, the motivation for all these things should be the fact that we realize this, that we have been chosen by God. 
that God has set his love upon us so that we can be his bride. And he knows all the worst things about us. And he still chose us that from before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. And so why, why would we want to turn to anything else to satisfy our souls? Why would we want to turn to any other lover? Again, the title for this series is Strangers and Aliens, Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. Well, beloved, one thing that can make the difficult journey home much lighter, much easier, is this gospel vision, that God has loved us from before the foundation of the world. And so no matter how difficult it may get, no matter how much we may want to give up, no matter how much we may want to throw in the towel and say, Lord, I just can't do this anymore, let us remember that God has loved us before the foundation of the world. He has loved us because of his own heart of love. He has loved us even at the cost of sending his own son to the cross. And he has loved us that we might be his bride. And so have that gospel vision, beloved, in those moments of difficulty. Let this reality sink into your heart. Soak in this reality of God's love, of God's choice in you. And let it work its proper effect, that it will make your heart long, make your heart long to turn to him who would love you so. Would you join me now as we pray for, excuse me, as we pray for our own church And as we think of the world around us and the many needs in the world around us, let's also turn our hearts to others as we pray for them. Join me in prayer now. Heavenly Father, I indeed thank you that you have so chosen us, God. (laughs) And it still staggers me, Lord, that you have chosen me. Lord, I, who am such an offending sinner, and yet you have chosen me. Lord, I thank you, and I love you, Lord, for how you have set your love upon me. God, I pray that you would do a good work in each one of our hearts who are here this morning, that our hearts would respond to you in this cry of love, which is your desire, God, that our hearts would respond to you in this cry of love because your own heart has loved us first. And so, Lord, would you work this greatest of blessings in our hearts? And, Lord, would you hear our prayers now? as we turn to you.